Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation from May 20th with Amy Rose, the CEO of Rose Associates, one of the largest storied, venerable apartment owners and managers in New York City. Amy is a third-generation leader of this company and also its first female CEO. This interview is also a companion to my early interview with Amy's cousin, Jonathan Rose, who's a leader in the affordable housing business back in season one. Take a listen. We spend most of the conversation talking about COVID from the front lines in a real estate management company in New York, which is at the front line of the crisis. This was a heartfelt conversation about the tragedies, challenges, day-to-day operational strategies, and the rebuilding that will be needed. Amy speaks from the perspective of running a real estate operating company with many frontline employees, as well as from the perspective of someone, indeed both a real estate executive and a civic leader, who deeply loves her city. I referred throughout the conversation in the podcast to other podcasts that have focused on different aspects of the COVID crisis in New York City. So that you can find these, do check out The Daily with Michael Barbaro from the New York Times, which has had many conversations about COVID, of course, and a bunch on New York, especially one released a few weekends ago on the closing of the restaurant Prune in New York. That was a touching, thoughtful conversation with ripple implications far beyond the obvious. Amy and I also refer to a recent episode on Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing. By the way, that man has a voice and The Tim Ferriss Show, all of which have had deep dives into what is going on in New York, particularly with frontline workers, the rebuilding that it will take when the city once again gets to recover from a crisis, and in some of these episodes, my other obsession, which is what happens to restaurants through this crisis in New York and elsewhere. If you've not noticed, we've pivoted a bit on leading voices. Our theme since inception has been the stories of great leaders in the real estate business, and we've always balanced my deep desire for dives and deep dives into understanding their businesses alongside telling the stories of their career journeys. In the time of COVID, focusing on career journeys feels a bit tone deaf since each of these leaders is now dealing as we all are with the effects of COVID on their lives personally and on their businesses. So during this time of COVID, which we all know is going to be much longer than we hope it would be, Most of the conversations will be deep discussions around the COVID topic and its impact on their businesses. No doubt, of course, that COVID is the penultimate leadership crucible in all of our careers. So we're not losing the theme of leading voices around leadership through this discourse. The other pivot will be a more informal approach to the rhythm of our releases. Since inception, we've released on Mondays and essentially released on a regular twice a month schedule and we've taken the summer off. We're gonna continue to release basically on Mondays, although this episode is coming on the Tuesday after Memorial Day, but we'll be a bit less regular than twice a month, maybe just once a month, and I'm not gonna take the summer off. I guess there's no vacation this summer. It's Groundhog Day. But in this time of COVID, I don't wanna miss these conversations and what people are doing, and the summer's gonna be an important time for the evolution of all this mess. In this spirit, I continue to welcome your feedback on Leading Voices and do ask that you share your favorite episodes with friends and colleagues. I find deep meaning from the explorations of these conversations, and I hope that you do too. Please send any comments 
via our LinkedIn postings or feel free to email me at my search alter ego, which is Matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. Next episode, by the way, is also a deep dive conversation on COVID and the impact on real estate with Mary Ludgin from Heitman, where we look into the crystal ball and explore what the post-COVID real estate world might look like. This conversation with Amy Rose, however, is all about the here and now and dealing with this crisis at this moment and on the front lines. Once again, Amy and I jump right into the conversation. I hope that you enjoy the episode. I was on a podcast interview that will be like a video podcast interview, so I guess it's not a podcast yesterday, and the person said, how you doing? And I said, I'm fine, I'm great. And then I paused, you know, dot, 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 and said, but, you know, that's tempered with I'm not doing great because of the state of the world. And somehow you have to let both that you're allowed to feel good sit alongside the state of the world and then how you're dealing with the world and you can't let it totally get you depressed, you know, because it is a rabbit hole. But at the same time, if you're ignoring it, you're crazy. Well, I think I agree with you 100%. And I think one of the things that I'm concerned about, certainly as the leader of a company, but also for my own family and myself, Mm -hmm. is now the toll of everybody's mental health on this. And as I said to you, every Friday, we have a Zoom meeting with our company. And, um, and I start out by saying, again, just making sure everybody is physically okay, and mentally okay. Because I think now that we're several months into this, it's really important to recognize both elements of this. And I think it's unnatural, sort of the way that we're living, certainly here in New York City, and in the surrounding environment of New York and the tri-state region, you know, we're really in the center of the pandemic. And we have a lot of people who are living at home. And I think it's important to make sure that we are mentally staying healthy as well as, you know, physically. Certainly people have had COVID that we know, uh, both personally and and obviously professionally. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. You could spend so much of your day just in utter despair. And I don't think that that's healthy for anybody. Yeah. And you run a company with a lot of frontline workers. So think about that four months ago, did you spend much time asking how your team was emotionally feeling about the world? And now you have to kind of talk about that. And that, and I think you used, when I talked the other day, spoke the other day, I think you said some of this democratizes some of the workplace interactions, which may be lasting. Yes. I think a couple things. One, I think I'm an empathetic person, and so in general, I'm always caring about how people are feeling or reacting. And I think in general right now, we're living in a culture that's emphasizing fear. And and I'm not a doctor, and I never want this, certainly when we historically look back to this podcast, be making a comment on the medical part of this, right? Right. And I... I'm trusting what we're hearing from the medical professionals and trying to temper that, right, with running a business. But I think it's really important to always make sure your employees are healthy and you have to listen to what they're reacting to in every situation. I mean, clearly that's the emphasis right now, right, because we have Mm -hmm. people that have put themselves in the front line of this. I'm operating 17,000 units. So we have, you know, building workers who are there assisting with packages and cleaning and delivering things. And that's only going to continue. And we've had 
two, one porter and one doorman in our portfolio who have died from this. So it's very Mm. real. And we have, you know, a very limited operational staff where we have one person sort of manning the operations of the building, and that is going to continue. And so I have to acknowledge the bravery of our employees who are really dedicated. We have a whole team of, I think it's like three or four people, I call them like our roving crew, that have been delivering supplies throughout this pandemic from the very beginning when we had a sense um, at the end of February that this could really be coming and hitting New York. We started, as I'd mentioned to you, Matt, before, getting more and more of our supplies ready, bigger cleaning um, supplies and and that kind. I don't think anyone was ever envisioning getting masks and gloves and all of that. And I would say that has continued. We've been sourcing from all over the country, you know, Arizona, and then locally when we could. Now we've sort of tempered that out because, again, as, as everything in the country is sort of stabilized, supplies are re- more readily available. But this team was delivering supplies throughout this to the buildings. And that is exposing themselves, you know, in a way that is exemplary. It's above and beyond. You know, this we're all in an untested business environment, right, where people, you're seeing it from the nursing staff, and, and all these people are putting themselves on a front line in a way that just nobody had ever thought before. Mm-hmm. So sort of a long-winded answer to <laughs> your question, but... I think definitely some of the things our employees are telling us in these weekly calls is Zoom experiences, how much it means to have human connection, right? Because as I said, some of these people are living alone. They're isolated in small apartments. And this is sort of their weekly connection to sort of a broader company and their colleagues and to a world that reminds them of what was you know, pre-March 1st, right? Pre-COVID. And I keep telling them we're going to get back to it. You know, everybody is doing the same thing and everybody is worrying about, are they getting enough sleep? Are they exercising? How did I get my hair cut? You know, everybody, what do I look like on Zoom? And and I think that that's healthy. You know, people are really struggling with some of the kids are in the middle of the meetings. They just barge in and and that's okay Mm -hmm. because you can't hide. You know, some some people have one computer and that's what the family's using and some have two and can separate. But you know, people, as I said, are being tested in so many ways that they never had to before. And I think it's it's really hard. And so I think everybody is seeing each other in a more exposed manner. And I think that that's OK. You mm-hmm. know, that mm-hmm. we're all human. Right. We're all human. Yeah, we're all human and going through something similar, although it's you know, you hear these other comments. People say, well, we're all in the same boat. We're all in very different boats crossing the same ocean with lots of horrible waves. And I will say, I'm guessing if this for you, but I know it for me, I'm one of the lucky ones in that I'm not putting myself on the front line and I'm in a nice home with really good meals every day that I get to cook. And so you're holding both of them at the same time. And the democratization is the right word. You're letting the workers who were workers who we took for granted in normal times, I will hate to say, now they're the frontline people we care. It matters. And it, it changes so many things about how this business runs. Well, yes, but I don't want you to think that certainly we or I ever took for granted the building staff because of sort of my role in the company and how I came up through my career. You know, I was a property manager and I worked in the construction department and I did all these tasks. So I 
don't take for granted these roles. What I think you're seeing certainly in New York mm-hmm. is the recognition and the heroism of the nursing staff and the emergency medical personnel and, you know, that whole cheering at seven o'clock every night and how wonderful that is and people understanding the resiliency. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, people also now have a greater appreciation for teachers, clearly. Right. <laughs> As they're struggling to do to do both things. I would say like you, I'm incredibly blessed and I start with that I'm healthy, right? Mm-hmm. And I have not had anybody in my immediate family have this and I, you know, again, we're dealing with a health issue. And so when people are concerned about their health and that's their focus, it's it's, you know, when you're not sick, mm-hmm. you're just grateful and I'm grateful every day. Yeah. So, yeah. And and help me think about how ready for this you were. And of course you weren't because you didn't know this was coming. But I'm thinking pre-technology days, had this occurred, it would be harder because we do it with our eyes closed. And in some ways we're doing it with our eyes open. And you have a company that knows how to communicate. And that's been put in place over you know the last 10 years of how you've been able to operate business in the multifamily space. Is that true? Or were the kind of tools there so you could almost jump your way into this muddling through this thing? Or was it 100% got to figure this out? Probably 50%. I mm-hmm. think, again, because we're dealing in an operational aspect of people's lives, mm-hmm. some of this is not enabled by technology, right? Technology can't clean the hallways and, and all those actual tasks. Mm-hmm. I think as far as running uh, the business side of this, you know, we had to do a little bit of catch up and, and make sure that, first of all, all of our employees had proper computers and had the technology in their own homes. We had a few that didn't to to run their jobs. So not every job of ours in our business operation can be done so easily at home. And we're now obviously there and we'll continue to do that um, until we can be back in our space. I would say some things are easier um, than others, you know, trying to manage the construction process and, you know, getting all these architects and and construction managers online and working in a digital format like virtual format is challenging. I wouldn't say can't be done. It's just challenging. And I think as far as what we're seeing now, very good changes, right? In our leasing capacity for the first time ever nationally, you have both the prospect is having a virtual experience as well as the leasing people. Usually you had one of, let's say, of those two that could have before been in a virtual situation. And now we're obviously getting best practices for how to continue that going forward, right? We're seeing some great conversions. So we know that we're capable of doing it and we'll continue in that manner. I think when we're started, which we're in now, sort of the moving forward out of sort of lockdown, we'll make some adaptation to that. But, you know, clearly, I don't think we ever envisioned a time where we would have both sides of the leasing transactions, for example, virtual. Right. And talk about just for perspective, you you manage and operate 17, some of which you own. So 17,000 units in New York. Talk about the geography of that. And then talk about the levels or types of property. Are they all high-service, high-end properties. Talk about that. So I would say, right, so we manage 17,500 units currently, Mm -hmm. and about a third of those we have an ownership interest in, and the rest are obviously third-party clients. We do a large institutional business as well. 
Mm-hmm. So most of that product is in the New York City, in New York, in Manhattan, and then some is in outside and, and moving into Westchester. For the most part, we operate in the higher end uh, category, we'll call A, housing, right, full mm-hmm. service. Mm-hmm. But we have other properties that are probably, if you were ranking them in a national model, like a B level. Yeah. But so again, you know, that's takes you through the levels. You know, these are very high service. Most of them are large high rises. So, you know, 20, 30, 40 story buildings, two to 300 units. So, you know, it's a large scale. And I would say we have had some buildings have had 50 to 60% occupancy since the COVID hit, you know, when New York went under lockdown, I think those residents went home either to be with extended family or were younger populations that went back to their parents that are now we know are starting to come back. And we've had other buildings that are have been 70, 75, 80% full and occupied from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So, again, it just depends on and, on that. Any sense of, because we've been talking mostly about your workers so far and your team, so I'm thinking more about your residents now. In that resident mm-hmm. population, any sense of the incomes of the folks who've stayed or those who've left? And one of the things we've seen in the Times a lot is that the higher-end zip codes in New York have not emptied out, but there's more people going to weekend homes or to their parents and the lower income zip codes, everyone's staying there? Well, I would say, you know, when I was talking about some of the buildings, mm-hmm. let's say were 50, 60% occupied and some were higher. But in, in many of these, there's the affordable component of right. housing that we have. Mm-hmm. But we know from just the adoption of who's paying us rent and, and where these people are living, they're working. And so far, we've had a reasonable adoption of rent. And we know that uh, those that are working who haven't had the ability to work at home, right, stay at home, have been out working. But, you know, for the most part, we're, we're covering up with a higher income population. And in your business, talk a little bit about how the residents are experiencing your work with them and any feedback you get to them. And then also talk about have your being either vacancies coming up or rent being late. Okay, so let me try and unpack that. First of all, I want to say that we've been working with any of our residents that have had a problem paying rent. And we have set up a whole system from the very beginning in all of our communication to the residents, you know, set up a whole COVID email and way for us to track everything that's going to have to do with this pandemic and period. And we always want to be mindful of every resident of ours who is in a financial position, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I want to be very clear on that. The residents, actually, it's interesting. This morning, I got the results from our monthly Kingsley survey. Uh, We have this national organization surveying our residents. And we have continued all the way through to be at a very, very high consistency levels. They sort of didn't even drop off since January, which leads me to say that our staff has been doing an amazing job, right, with cleaning and and maintenance. And the residents have told us just because, again, I have offices, right? I have an office there and we have personnel and 
They're very grateful for the service and for the support of the people that are in the building taking care of everybody. We obviously made some modifications to how we're um, watching the levels of staff and Mm -hmm. also what we're doing for the tenants. But they have been incredibly complimentary and very touching emails actually about when this porter in one of the buildings and one of the doormen perished, passed away. You know, beautiful emails that came in from from the residents about how close they were to the staff and, and how devastated they were. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, we've set up a great sense of community in each of our properties. And I would say from the very beginning, we were aggressive in making sure that we had constant communication with our residents. Um, in the beginning, sort of taking them through in the early stages of this, it seems so far away, Matt, to talk about March 15th, right? <laughs> it seems like another lifetime ago. Uh-huh. But really talk about what we were doing in those early stages about a cleaning or if people were self-quarantining and sort of operational issues. And then we would always have both materials digitally as well as always print them out in case somebody did not have the capacity to look at things digitally. And we posted them in, you know, public spaces in the building, making sure about social distancing and making sure they had enough cleaning supplies. And again, making sure they all had resources mm-hmm. for online things that could help them if they needed help with childcare or suggestions about schooling and health apps for, you know, both physical and mental health and supporting online museums and things like that to try and make sure we constantly were engaging our residents. And I would say we've had a lot of comments now about when are you opening? When am I going to get back to my amenities? When am I going to get, you know, when is X, Y, and Z happening? So now we're sort of focused on that. I would say what we're finding is June starts to become sort of a seasonal time for leasing. And in that Kingsley survey, there were high marks for the intent to stay, but I haven't been able to break down yet. If they're leaving, I don't think it's related to the specific experience of a building that they're mm-hmm. living in. It's, mm-hmm. it's either I may have lost my job or I'm leaving New York or I'm moving because I don't like X, Y, and Z, right? It's not related to their experience. We are going to do a survey directly related to the COVID time frame, but we're still in it. So it's too early to collect that data. And mm-hmm. I'll share it with you when I get it. Don't be interested. Yeah. Our collections, like most of the rest of the country for April, were in the residential portion, probably 95%. And in the commercial and retail, probably 35%. Mm-hmm. Remember, each of these buildings has a commercial component of, let's say, doctors or very small offices, physical therapists, and the retail, you know, all those service stores. So that was devastating to us. And in May, again, 87%, it looks like, of rents have been collected, but the commercial retail is way down, maybe 28%. And again, with each passing month, that's going to just continue to decline. And, you know, that's talking about that piece. And as I mentioned, the populations of the building we're noticing are becoming more full, I think, with the anticipation that New York is going to open up originally, people thought, June 1. So you're definitely seeing mm-hmm. these buildings start to people who had left are now coming back, which I think also bodes well for New York City, right? We need to get the economy going back there. We, we are always going to be careful about making sure everybody's safe and healthy, but making sure that we can get the people back in New York and enjoying our city. So that it can survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's survive and thrive, and the the world needs your city. So we'll we'll come back to that in a few minutes. And it's interesting the word opening up. 
And so I talked to some people and they go, okay, back to normal, I, which I just can't believe anyone would say that. And it does feel that we're in, although opening somewhat, we're in a one, two, maybe even three, God forbid, year phase before there's a cure and easy treatment for this stuff so that we don't have to worry anymore and we can walk around without face masks. How do you view kind of opening up cautiously and then continuing to manage through this crisis of, call it 24 months, just for fun? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, because we have been dealing with this, the very first person who had COVID in New York City was identified on March 1st, and they happened to be a resident of ours for one of our institutional clients. So Mm. we have been dealing with this since day one, so Mm -hmm. March 1st. And so when I say opening up again, I agree with you. It's sort of managing through another level of expectation, right? And safety. So I feel like we're coming out of hunker down crisis Mm -hmm. and we're cautiously making sure that we adhere to the protocols that are either coming out from the CDC or from the governor or from the mayor. Mm -hmm. Um, At this point, they haven't given 100% specific guidelines for the residential sector, which I think you know, has been a little challenging because we're managing as best we can safely. And I don't know whether they'll come out with specific mandates, but we are responding to our residents who are going to continue to work at home, for example. So we're beginning to open up, giving thought to how we're going to open up our amenity spaces, our lounges, you know, Mm -hmm. the roof decks have been open. Again, everything is with the intent of social distancing. Mm -hmm. So we've removed furniture on roofs that aren't six feet apart and we've put marking so everybody knows where to be. And again, the residents are very grateful to be out on the roofs. We have some barbecues. So we're using those as long as it's, you know, every other one, everything with six feet. We're continuing right now to prepare the lounges in public and those kinds of spaces. We're moving furniture again so that people can use those spaces safely. And I Mm -hmm. think they're going to continue. I think one of the changes that we're going to see certainly through till Labor Day and beyond is a certain amount of this working population in New York will continue to work from home, right? Mm -hmm. And so making sure the functionality of our lounges and those kinds of spaces, if they didn't accommodate that will in the future, or making sure they can do that now, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think why you're seeing residents say, help, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I need to get out of my apartment. I need, I need some (laughs) bigger space. The gyms, again, we're watching the guidelines that are going to come out from again, the CDC and the government. And I think there will probably go on the side of a little more caution, possibly again, because of what happens in a gym. But that's also very important. I know for when we started in the beginning of this conversation for people's mental and physical health, I think the gyms were one of the the amenities that we tr- we shut down really last. People really wanted that for their own mental release, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be very careful and diligent. And we've, we're working on our plans right now. We will be opening those up when we know that we safely can, most likely when the commercial gyms are allowed to open. But we're, again, going to be same in the lounges using we have um, a Rose app that you every resident gets and you know you can reserve when to come into the gym and we're going to run them for a period of two hours and then clean them i mean there's going to be so many more cleaning protocols required and again in the lounges so that we can make sure that enough people get to use these spaces and Mm -hmm. use them safely Mm -hmm. 
and then give us the opportunity to make sure that we can clean them and continue at the highest level of operational consistency and care that we normally do. Have you tracked how many of your residents have bought and received Peloton bikes since the crisis? (laughs) No. And unfortunately, what happened here in New York is I think once we went under lockdown around the middle to the end of March. Peloton wasn't able to deliver into New York and set them up. Mm-hmm. So again, in the gyms that we have, some had those spinning bikes. So I think that's going to, again, be a change where a lot of residents, you know, were, were trying to do their at-home exercise apps, just like anyone else, everywhere else in the country. Oh. So we, we did not track Peloton. Okay, good. No. You, you, that, would, that would be intrusive, but it becomes a true thing, right? I've read so much about this, and if I didn't have my exercise, I wouldn't make it either. Talk about the industry. Talk about New York. Talk about leadership in New York. Are you alone as a CEO? Are you working with colleagues? Are you working with the industry? Do you get protocols from the governor, from the president? Where? How do you learn what to do and How do you not be alone in coming up with the answers or protocols for this? So I'm not going to get mired in a national political conversation. I gave you an opening, but I didn't mean for it to be open. No, no. I think one of the things we've seen has been the wonderful uh, way that our governor, Mm -hmm. Andrew Cuomo, has really taken hold of this crisis and done a wonderful job, certainly leading New York State through this very, very difficult time and has provided wonderful leadership, right, for mm-hmm. our for our state and also the mayor, both of them working to make sure that everybody stays safe and healthy. And, and I can't imagine, you know, the kind of stress and how they're operating. They probably haven't slept since this started. Right. I would say I'm very fortunate to be part of a lot of the leader, real estate leadership Rebney in New York City. I'm on the executive committee. I'm on the board of the Real Estate Roundtable, which is, you know, the national mm-hmm. real estate lobbying group in the country. And, and I'm involved in something at Columbia. So I'm very fortunate that I have the ability to be in touch with my fellow colleagues across the country and certainly in the city so that we are all grappling with this. And I don't think anybody has any way to really do this alone. Um, Nobody has really lived through something like this, right, where we are dealing with a health pandemic. And then on top of that, the economy just shut down overnight. So you're dealing with not only health, you're now dealing with how to manage a business in a crisis like this. And I think I'm old enough to have lived through a few of these. And so getting perspective, reminding myself of the perspective of what happened the last few times around, but I'm very lucky to be able to, you know, pick up the phone or have a Zoom conference with with all of my fellow CEOs of these other corporations and sort of doing best practice, right? We're all trying to learn from each other. And this is a time, as you're seeing across the country, but certainly in New York, where everybody has to marshal together. Uh, if we don't work collectively, and especially in New York, we're just not going to get get out from under this. And so that's really, you know, when we were and a lot of calls, constant communication with our partners and clients. I, I believe it's been very important to be honest and truthful and transparent mm-hmm. so that we're not doing this alone and, and to be communicating, again, honestly with my colleagues. So that was in the, you know, the beginning of it. Now it's 
How are you thinking about reopening? How are you handling um, your employees? How are you handling dealing with opening up your buildings? So, you know, we're, we're learning and, and talking the same way that people are calling me, right? How are you dealing with it? Because since I don't run a commercial office building, I have to rely on my friends in the industry to understand how is our office building going to open? How do I protect my employees? And similarly, those people are asking me about the protocols for the residential side where their employees are living, right? So Mm -hmm. it's mutually beneficial. Uh And I'm wondering among, I'll break into maybe mom and pop versus institutionally managed real estate, which is um, 100% of your stuff. I'm wondering if there's going to be a wide range or very narrow range of decision-making and behavior among owners and managers of institutionally uh, of institutional property in terms of these rules and how lax they are or not lax. I'm going to guess it's going to be a fairly narrow band, but there's a lot of judgment calls around things that we don't know how to do, like taking temperature of people or turning them away, not letting them in a building at a given moment. A lot of moral issues, a lot of intrusiveness issues, and a lot of safety issues. And it's all risk mitigation, not full answers. Right. So part of because New York has really been in the Mm -hmm. epicenter of this and we're sort of coming out of it last, we've been able to look to our partners and colleagues across the country to see how they're handling their residential properties. And and I would say, as far as we're concerned, during the lockdown uh, period, obviously, we did not allow anybody that was not a resident to come into the building, right? So any deliveries or things happened and stayed at the front, we had our residents come down unless they were self-quarantining, in which we brought things up to their apartment door and let them know we were outside with whether it was a food delivery or packages or whatever. Now that we're moving out of this phase, um, what is clear is, and by the way, I should mention that all of our properties, people have gloves and masks, all of our building staff. I can't say that that every owner of housing in New York had that, but again, because of the bandwidth of the supplies that we had, we all of our workers, we made sure are safe. We're going to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. We are going to be taking temperatures of the people that work in the building that are coming in to do sort of important service work, right? right? Whether it's important maintenance as we begin in this slowly opening up phase. And I think that's also what the everybody wants, right? They want to make sure that they are healthy. We're following the guidelines we've been given and we're going to continue with that. I think it's a little harder probably in the commercial space, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, we're going to have large populations working and staying at home. And I think that's going to be, again, the challenge in the building, yes. right? They used to, like, the, the large majority would leave during the day and then come back. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we did have small pockets working from home, but we're going to we're gonna continue. And I, and I would say we're looking at how our colleagues have opened their buildings nationally, right? And I think, you know, what's opened, how are they performing work, how is it going, how are the residents feeling about people coming and being, you know, back in spaces where they're sharing. Again, we're cleaning down hallways. We're watching which elevators, if we can, dedicate one to just that's where construction will happen or building, you know, the garbage is or whatever is going to be so that we're trying to minimize the amount of traffic that's in each element of the building that we can control. Right. So we'll kind of move on to uh, some other topics, but related topics. 
keep reading in the New York Times particularly, lots of articles around rent strikes and articles around the word landlord equals the word villain. And nothing that we've talked about so far might suggest that about you or your colleagues or our industry, because this entire conversation is about responsibility. Talk about how that stands alongside this. And of course, rents are a different subject than are how you operate these buildings. And you get to operate these buildings for a hiring clientele generally. But you're involved with the industry, so you're sensitive to this topic. Just talk about that standing alongside what we're discussing on the challenges of the COVID crisis. Well, I think, first of all, what's been really heartbreaking to see in my city Mm -hmm. is the disparity of how minority populations have really been impacted significantly by COVID more than others. And so, you know, that's part of this challenge that the city is going to have to work through and make sure that everybody's getting access to proper health care when needed or just in general. I, I think what's hard for me as somebody who's been an impassioned New Yorker my entire life, I've lived there my entire life, is this notion that every landlord is irresponsible and is not necessarily caring about uh, their their residents. Um, we're only out for greed and profit. And of course, I'm running a business, right? Like anybody else. So I want to make a profit. But as I said, from very early on, I was out front early on with other leaders in my industry and signed the very first non-eviction policy right as this pandemic was starting. Um, right. We've agreed to continue that. So why would I ever want to evict somebody who's under crisis? As I said, personally, for our properties, we are working with those that are having issues with rent. I've now been involved with a wonderful um, philanthropic effort with other leaders um, called Project Parachute, which is really here to help with the affordability crisis and the issues around rent. And this is going to continue, um, right? But Mm -hmm. to vilify every landlord around the country, I feel is unfair. And I think on the other side, that you're seeing is we're trying very hard to to do the right thing, right? And I think if we're not going to have people pay rent, I'm not sure on the other side, if I don't get relief from taxes or my mortgage payments, I don't know how I'm supposed to do that, right? Becomes um, just like a single family, right? I don't have mm-hmm. income coming in, so how am I supposed to, to pay what's a critical part of keeping my financial obligations. So I think it's just a quandary. And I think, you know, again, now that we're getting people back to jobs and earning an income, hopefully we'll get out of that. But certainly in New York, um, as part of the leadership in the industry, we're, we're very focused and concerned to make sure everybody on both sides of this are, are being fair about it. It's interesting that one of the more recent podcasts we did was with Doug Bibby of the National Multifamily Housing Council. We talked about this issue, both how the word landlord and the word developer are villains in in popular culture shouldn't be. And I think it's up to our industry to, to work together to help change that discourse. And it's also very different between institutional owners, operators, than it is between non-institutional owner operators and right. where the yeah. anger comes from. It's mostly those other guys, but we can't control them as an industry because the industry groups include 
kind of the institutional folks. Yeah, I uh, would just, agree with that. <laughs> so it's just true. So you talk about being an impassioned New Yorker, and your family is philanthropists or philanthropists in New York for a long, long time. And this is a city you care about. And we all care about. Talk about what this crisis means for the city. And we started the conversation talking about the Alec Baldwin podcast with Kathy Wilde and Tom Wright, where they were talking about the long-term challenges, maybe similar to the bankruptcy challenges years and years and years ago in restructuring because of the cost of this and the infrastructure for the city. So talk about how the city comes back, what this means across the board. So I think, first of all, you know, what's so hard is to see my city sort of in this apocalyptic vision, as I was describing it to you, you know, when everybody on the national news sees nobody in Times Square and sees, you know, nobody on Park Avenue or Madison Avenue or uh, up in, you know, Harlem or whatever, it, it is really devastating to see a city that just has no life to it, right? One of the <laughs> things that, that I believe that New York will come back, we've shown it crisis and time and time again mm-hmm. it's going to take a while for sure and i think it's going to take everybody's effort on all public private partnerships right it's, mm-hmm. it's it's just that's what's going to be required but i think why does new york constantly you know come back out of the the phoenix out of the ashes why is it reinventing itself it's because it's like no other city in this country and probably in the world it attracts mm-hmm. the brightest and the best and the wonderful arts and the culture and the restaurants. And I don't think that that just goes away without a fight. I think certainly the disparity that exists in the wealth gap and in now we have this crisis with unemployment and how much of it is is going to come back when we open the city up again. I mean, you're seeing that all over the country and how much of it just disappears and what what are we going to do about it? So I think, you know, there was also this belief after 9-11, you know, even I had some friends, everybody's leaving New York, it's unsafe. Okay, a few people left and then a lot stayed and a lot came. And then it was the financial crisis in 2008 and the city was going to die again and we sort of managed to come back and now we have this pandemic. I don't think it's just as simple as that and I, and I don't want to, you know, make, make light of it. It, it. I'm very concerned about it and I think there are a lot of fundamentals that were said this morning on that podcast that really liken this to sort of 1970s, right, where mm-hmm. this city, because of everything, has been shut down and the crisis that's existing between the public constituents and the private institutions and businesses are echoing to that. And it needed the leadership again of the private businesses to pull New York out of that crisis. And I think, you know, we have some of the smartest minds in the country available to us. And I think we are going to find a way forward. Yeah. And the structural challenges, one that came on the podcast was just talking about the subway and the subway that was about to get a huge amount of inf- infrastructure improvement is now that all, money's all going to go into operations and not to the improvement. And if we don't get the real money for the improvement that has to be made, then you can't get people around anymore. And it, and it remains Correct. an unsafe place. Correct. And I think, you know, that we're going to have to be addressing that, right? Mm-hmm. And have to address it and be responsible about it. I mean, if people don't feel 
safe in public transportation, which is really the heartbeat of the city. I don't know how we get people around, but I'm going to go with that. We're going to try and solve that as best we can. And I think you have this brightest business minds all focused on these issues, right? Mm -hmm. And in both sides of that in the public sector as well. So we're going to have to figure out how to do it. Right now, people are walking around a lot or they're taking bikes or they're, you know, trying to manage their way to get to work. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's good. It's, it'll be continued conversations on our podcast, you know, because I've asked the question, is urbanization dead? Are cities dead? And and people, that could be a really cool headline, right? Yeah, cities are dead. And you're right, they weren't before and they won't be again. And New York is the most visible city, the most iconic city to everyone in the country. We all have a vision if Times Square looks dead. That means something to everyone viscerally. There's no other place in an urban setting in the country where people know what that means, except for New York. Right, right. So I think, you know, I remember after 9-11, you know, we have a one of our residential buildings is six blocks south. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had to go three or four days after that event with the National Guard, you know, opening up our building and going to, to present my papers that I was the owner and sort of just walk and make sure the mm-hmm. building was okay. Obviously, nobody was in it. And I remember climbing up the 20 stories and up on the roof looking at this, you know, gaping hole of, of burning metal and mass at the World Trade Center and just feeling like my city had been in a war. Right. And I'll never forget the days when shortly following, you know, these tanks, I mean, military tanks were going down Fifth Avenue and just staring in disbelief. Mm-hmm. And then you think back to where we are, right, pre-COVID, where we have this wonderful revitalization that right. it took a while, but it happened. And I think that's why I look at these images of, and I know and I'm there and I see the empty right. city and streets. And I and that apocalyptic right movie vision, and you're like, we're going to be resilient enough. I think this morning, I believe the Met, who's celebrating its 150th anniversary, announced they're going to be opening. I think if September, October. So again, I think that that's a really positive statement. Again, we're going to Absolutely. come back, and we are going to bring this city back to where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting, I'm remembering right after 9-11, and th- this will edge towards politics, where which we'll then avoid again. But it was after 9-11, the country came together. In fact, the world came together crying for New York because everyone has an emotional connection. And this time it doesn't feel that way. People feel the pain of New York, but they're not crying for New York because this divide thing that's going on, that part breaks my heart because it doesn't make sense around this issue in which we're all together. I would agree. When you and I agreed to do this three months ago, it was, okay, we're going to talk about your career story, your career journey, and what it is you do, and being a woman CEO in the business, so we can pack all of that into the final 10 minutes of the conversation. But tell your story briefly and the story of your company and... And I am curious because there's half a dozen iconic family real estate businesses in New York, and you're one of them. So just kind of give us the origination story of this and then how you got to where you got to. That's a lot I to know. happen in six minutes or something. But I will Go say I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO and president 
of Bros Associates, which has been around and incorporated since 1927 when the company was founded by my grandfather, Samuel, and my great uncle, David Rose. And here we are having this conversation and I'm constantly reflecting back on the lessons learned Mm -hmm. through all the different cycles of our business and, you know, what were the core values that kept us together as I try and lead through this pandemic and, and onward. So I would say the company started by my grandfather and great uncle. And like all good Jews, they started in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, the first building was in the 30s, actually it was a workout for one of the banks. And they started and in 1936, I think they built a thousand grand concourse and one of the first buildings with reinforced concrete. And in 1940, they came into Manhattan and built the Westmore 333 West 57, still is in existence today. It's a condo, co-op and condo. Mm -hmm. And the evolution of the firm in the 40s and mid-50s, my late uncle Fred Rose, my uncle Daniel Rose, and my father Elihu Rose all came into the business. And I would say we were always a rental developer of multifamily housing. They believed that you know, that would carry you through all different cycles, um, as opposed to the condominium development. So that was really that story. We always stayed on the East Coast. No one really in the prior generations wanted to really be flying all over the place in a national effort. My uncle Dan, very successful developer in um, Boston and office buildings and in Pentagon City and Washington, D.C. But for the most part, we were always on the, the eastern seaboard and we continued that trend. And my cousin, Jonathan Rose, who I know has been on the podcast, yeah. was in our firm for about 10 years uh, from, you know, in the 80s. I had a, a cousin, David, who was in very briefly. And my cousin, obviously, Adam Rose worked together. We worked alongside each other for thir- till his retirement very recently for 30 years. Um, and I, 35 years, and I've been in the company 30 years. I celebrated my 30th anniversary. So, you know, we always were doing large-scale multifamily in New York City, which was our heritage. And I grew up, my father is an adjunct professor, was an adjunct professor until he retired a few years ago on faculty at NYU. And sort of, he was responsible for growing the actual management business in the company. My other two uncles really were more of the developers. And I would say I grew up as a young girl going to a few of the construction sites, but I wasn't really, you know, sitting at the dinner table. We were not really talking ad nauseum about the business, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It, was, it wasn't that kind of uh, topic. So I had distinct memories of going up on the hoist of the Sheffields that we were finishing the top of in the, you know, late, late 70s and going out to other jobs. And I was intrigued. And I remember graduating college and making the decision that I would come and work at the company. I'd spent a summer interning there before, and I had spent two summers working at Sotheby's Auction House, actually, in an internship program. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision um, to come and work in the company in 1989, June 14th. (laughs) (laughs) And I started, actually, we were in the middle of converting eight of our residential rental buildings into co-ops and condos. And I was assigned a line job working on renovating apartments. So my father now calls me the queen of towel bars and robe hooks. So I grew up on the real property side Uh of this business. And through it, I've worn all different hats in the company. And here I am today. So I would say I grew up obviously knowing 
these dear friends or iconic developers. So now I'm in the generation, you know, all of the quote unquote kids of these families, the Rudens, mm-hmm. the Resnicks, the Spires, the, you know, everybody, Silverstein's. And, you know, throughout time, there's always the families are dying out and New York City real estate is dying out. And again, here, here we are and we're all still here. So, <laughs> well, that's a lot. I would say certainly for me, there weren't, um, there were very few women in the mm-hmm. industry that could serve as role models. And very blessed to be very close with Marianne Ty. I have tremendous respect for her. And mm-hmm. Pat Goldstein was really very helpful in my career, sort of helping me think through how to be involved in, in the broader industry. And I think it's really important now. There's a, a, a greater number of women in leadership positions, still not enough, but there's more. Mm-hmm. And I think being part of that leadership group where, you know, I think it's critically important for the next generation of leader women to really see women leaders. And that representation really matters. It matters for for the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a couple questions that you... I glossed over a lot you, in my career there for you. I know. So, the, <laughs> And the first thing you glossed over that you had said to me the other day is that you have, there's kind of a rule in the company that no one can have their first job in the company, but you did. Just talk about that for a sec, because I'm so curious. So I think that was, you know, the, the notion that if you're going to come into to business, the family business, you had to have two years experience working for another real estate company, which uh-huh. all of my uh, cousins had. And when I mentioned that I was going to come in, they sort of waived that requirement. I've constantly gone back, I mean, in the earlier part of my career to mention that. And I think there just wasn't the anticipation, there, there was not the belief, I don't think, or the forethought that I was really going to stay there for the entirety of my career. I don't think anybody was blatantly sexist. I just think that's the meaning that that was sort of, I guess, how business was really thought of at that time. And there's just it was really real estate predominantly is a male industry. So I don't think anybody sort of said, wow, let's pluck, you know, Amy out in 30 years. She's going to be the CEO. So you broke the rule because it was easy for a woman. (laughs) They could let you do that. Probably, yeah, or, I'm sure they thought I was going to, you know, get married and have children, and that would be that. And I think it's also really one of the most important rules, which has carried on through our company, is that there really has to be a job, and it has to be a meaningful job that exists, that we weren't just trying to create a job for a family member. And so when I came into this time in the company, we were incredibly busy with this you know, huge undertaking of converting these buildings. And so, you know, it was just, I hit the ground running. And right. and I think that was, again, really helpful. And it was sort of a sink or swim kind of atmosphere. And then I also took classes in, you know, real estate finance and in development and in construction and, you know, really expanded my knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. that was the early part of my career. And I would say at some point, I remember talking to my late uncle Fred and saying, you know, what is the one thing I haven't done or what is missing in my career trajectory mm-hmm. to get me to be a developer? Like, wh- what is missing? And he said, you have to go on a construction site from the beginning to the end and actually be on the site. Mm-hmm. And so 
I went on site at a building called the Siena mm-hmm. that we were building, and it was about 1997, 98, and I was working as an assistant project manager there and got up and, you know, started working at six in the morning with the crews and left all the way at the end of the day at three o'clock and then would go back to the office and, you know, finish out the rest of my day. And I think that was, you know, from that moment, I've always fallen in love with being, you know, on the decks as we're pouring concrete. And really, I love the physical nature of of construction. So different question, a question about how you hold this and what I'm sensing from the conversation and through leading voices, probably half of these conversations are from founders of companies. And maybe the other half are people who've taken over roles and had to fight their way to the top of the organization to get there. And so there's a lot of ego among CEOs. And it feels like through our conversation that you have a humbleness about the business and a sense of responsibility about the business because you didn't create this thing, I guess is the, maybe the right way to say it. Maybe you're a steward of the business as much as I'm the CEO mm-hmm. and chest pounding. Talk about the kind of the tension around those words I just used. I have never been a big ego-driven person. So mm-hmm. I would say for me, carrying that ego of, being the first woman CEO or mm-hmm. being one of the first CEOs. But I would say definitely our industry has a lot of ego attached to some big personalities. And I would say that, you know, you have to have a certain fortitude in any business to make it to the top, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely a highly competitive person for anybody who really knows me. And I would say I have tremendous respect because I didn't, I wasn't the founder of this business, but I have been the steward of the legacy of this wonderful family that created it and also have turned it, uh, you know, on a pivot to move us forward, to bring in outside capital and partners and to put us in a place where we can continue to grow and thrive as we move forward. And I and I would think, you know, one of the, the great legacies that I've been privileged to be part of is the notion of it's incredibly important to give back mm-hmm. to the city that has given so much to me personally to and to my family. And I think that's part of the business. And I think, you know, the respect to the people who founded this. And as I'd said. Mm. And talk about giving back. And it was interesting, again, on the podcast that we were talking about before, we were talking about they mentioned in the bankruptcy crisis how the Rudin family stepped up and helped make that happen. And so I'm curious about that sense of responsibility as business leaders in the city, particularly real estate business leaders in the city. Talk about what that means, how you play that, and and how that may affect this crisis. So I think, first of all, I have tremendous respect for uh, the entire Rudin family and Bill Rudin and his children, Samantha and Michael and that generation, Eric. I'm I'm very good friends with them. I'm very close with their family as an example of of many of the family leaders of real estate. So I, I would think, you know, when we talk about how do we get out of this crisis, I mean, we're all working together to do that. I'm on the board of, you know, the Jewish Museum and and I think, you know, making sure the civic organizations are supported throughout this crisis. And I think 
in general, as I said, we also were part of an effort, uh, many of the families to work for this project parachute that talked about, you know, supporting affordable housing initiatives and, and mm-hmm. helping with this. I think, you know, it was just part of the fabric mm-hmm. of the New York real estate community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, kind of last question around your leadership for this. If you leave, say, your CEO for the next 20 years, just make up a number. <laughs> and COVID may actually be in the rearview mirror by the end of the 20 years. But where do you want to take this company and where how do you want to leave the company when you pass it on to the next generation? Well, I think, you know, continuing to leave the mark I've had in the last few years of running the business is we're adopting a lot of the national trends and sort of bringing that to New York City in how we operate our business and to continue to be the best in class as a multifamily operator and to continue to expand our platform, which we are doing, and take that you know more regionally, I would like to believe, and to continue in our development capacity, which we sort of haven't talked about because we spent so much time on the COVID, but we have an incredibly active pipeline and continue to expand that and be thoughtful about how we bring, you know, residential development um, to different communities. And and as we expand, uh, certainly what I'm doing is working on moving us outside of New York City on transit-oriented lines and sort of outside of what you would typically think of where, you know, Rose Associates has developed. We've done a lot of very wonderful complex projects in the last few years to continue to do that. And I think, you know, when looking back, people would say she was a, you know, a thoughtful leader and she was there to help us as we moved our business forward and was thoughtful and honest and all those things inclusive in in also representation of the people that are in our firm is critically important to me and to sort of continue to be involved on the national level and to to move us forward. It's interesting one of the themes that you just spoke about and it's is that it's a national business and you're part of a national business. And I've so often looked at New York for our business, I often call it the hole in the donut or the hole in the bagel, because it's its its own place. And mm-hmm. the multifamily industry in particular is massively national. And if you view your world as separate, it doesn't work. There's too much to learn. No, I agree. And I think that's what, you know, for a long time, we had a very insular view, right, of like New York, we do it this way. And that's the only way that it can be done. And I think it's important for us to look at the lessons we can learn, certainly in efficiency and other models that happen on a national level. But, you know, there's a lot of work here in the New York metro area. And, you know, we're just going to continue to expand our portfolio here. Um, It'll always be where our heart and soul is. And, you know, I think in the last few years, we have picked up some large assignments and really wonderful, exciting development projects. And I think that's just because we've had the staying power and the bandwidth, as I mentioned, all the way back um, since, you know, the 19, late 20s and early 30s. So, I think, you know, being active and and capable throughout that entire time and building out a a multi-pronged platform enables us to continue to to grow. Hmm. So last question on Leading Voices is always the advice you would have for a young person entering the real estate business, and in this case, maybe a young woman entering the real estate business. 
Well, it's definitely going to be a young woman. Yeah, of course, <laughs> and please. I would say, and I would say that representation is definitely changing. And I'm always happy when I'm, you know, mentoring and speaking to, to young people. I remind them of a couple of things. One, uh, most importantly, it's not necessarily related just to the real estate business, but to to make sure that you remember your first job is not your last job, and that you know you should find a part of the business that excites you. And to remember to be part of the whole industry. Um, I keep coming back to that. It was actually something my father really emphasized for me, which was to make sure that you network and be part of industry organizations Mm. and to grow those relationships. And I think um, I was able to join the Association of Real Estate Women. They allowed you to enter that organization with two years of working in the business. And so, so many of my contacts come from that time period all the way back, you know, 20-something years ago. And I've met some amazing women and have continued to sort of all grow through my career. And I think what's important for anybody entering is to make sure you understand and connect with with everybody around you and to understand sort of the different facets of the business that, you know, you may find yourself in one part, whether it be brokerage or, you know, everybody wants to be developer, but it's really hard to walk in and be a developer. So what part of those industries, you know, asset management and for the asset manager to understand about the property management and property management to understand the numbers side of it. And, you know, to me, what I've seen in my whole career is to understand the holistic part of how a building and how this business works. And I think, you know, I've been very fortunate. As I said, I started out, you know, counting the robe hooks and door hardware, but to really look at a piece of dirt and sort of say, okay, I understand the financial model of it, but really what does it mean to operate this building? And I think for me to have that operational piece also with the development piece, so you understand the choices you're making. So I would say the advice is just, you know, to always make sure you're open to also new experiences that can happen to you and, and you know, instead of just staying on a very narrow path. And I think that's going to be important in the next generation. Mm. It's interesting. I always talk to people and, and I like to use this as no offense to these folks, but people who start in real estate and the accounting side of things. And my advice is don't let yourself get isolated. And it's really easy to put your head down and do your job and not know your peers and not know the industry and not know other people, particularly if you're in a functional area like that. And this recent week, we were talking to potential CFOs for a position. And one of the guys we're talking to, you know, doesn't have a LinkedIn and didn't respond quickly to our reaching out to getting in touch and probably isn't really part of the industry, doesn't have that broader view. Now, that's just bread in the bone leadership, but people need that advice early on. It's it's really good advice. No, and I think that's part of what I do. And I know certainly when I've gone in to Columbia and I've lectured in some of their real estate finance classes is to say, you know, make sure you get out and go look at the jobs you're analyzing and go and walk and look at competing projects and understand what a wood floor means or a, you know, laminated floor and and Mm -hmm. what are the choices that are being made and how does, you know, property management and efficiencies really work in the choices that you make. And, you know, for we try and make sure we get all of our asset managers out and looking at properties and try and get 
get, you know, accountants and people in different areas to the buildings. And we, a lot of the time when we had the co-op and condo management division, we put a lot of different people on these boards as our representative to make sure they all had exposure because I think it's really critical to the point that you just made that somebody sitting in one department really understand what the other one is doing. And what I will say to that is when we've been doing these Zoom Friday calls, we've Mm -hmm. had four people speak for just a few minutes, and we are picking them from every different area of the company so that for the first time, people are really focused on listening to how each department Mm -hmm. is managing through this crisis, both personally and professionally. I think it's really healthy because it helps the overall organization. Absolutely. Having the big picture view matters a ton. And also through these organizations, and through the work we've done with your firm, but that's how we know each other because you're in a smaller organization with my wife, Diane, who um, next time in New York, we will have dinner together. So, And it won't be on a Zoom dinner. It'll be a real right. one. And what I will say is, again, talking about the power of networking. And I think, you know, being in, in one of the most wonderful organizations through Diane and her leadership, and again, that's on a national level, right? Being able to discuss so many challenging topics, especially in this time, is really important. And, and I really cherish those relationships. That's great. Hey, Amy, thank you very much. Really, really appreciate this conversation and can't wait to share this with the world and can't wait for us to continue the conversations outside of a podcast environment. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.